Have you ever read any scripture where you're kind of trucking along and you're like, scripture, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. And then something just hits you in the face. This is what happened to me the first time I read this passage. I literally dropped the Bible I was holding. There was something about the buildup of the story. This woman had been bleeding, and it, it was a uterine hemorrhage, by the way. She'd been bleeding for 12 years, which meant that she could not have been married. So there was no man, which in this time and place would have meant safety, sustenance, comfort. And so bleeding, she never could have born a child either. And with no sons, no safety, no sustenance, no comfort. And her healing is somehow connected to the healing of this 12-year-old girl. 12. Right as she might have started to bleed, she dies. The symmetry of that was just startling. And then the words, Kalitha Kum. You won't find Talitha Kum in a book of Hebrew. It's not Hebrew. It's not Greek. It's not Latin. It's Aramaic. These are the actual words Jesus spoke. There are only five places in the entire Bible where the Aramaic remains. I don't know why, it's a holy mystery, but it's here. And these words that resuscitated a dead girl, we know, and they are powerful, and they are Talitha Kum. And when I read them, they, they reverberated through me. It was like I was being spoken directly to now, here in this earthly plane, we are constrained by the rules of time and space, right? The divine is not limited by time. The divine is not limited by space, nor, do I argue, are our souls. And every soul is shot through with Jesus Christ. So when I heard Talitha Kum, I heard it from my soul, from my God. And Jesus said to me, little girl, rise up. Truth be told, this is my favorite passage. And as a result, I've preached it a lot. What have I preached? I've preached that women's health should be a priority in the same way that men's health is a priority. I've preached that women have to fight to get access to Jesus because the disciples, mostly male, are crowded around him. I've preached that the lives and bodies of our little girls need support and attention and care and not exploitation. These are the things I've preached and they're good. Right? I mean, they've preached again and again and again. They've preached. They still preach. But in the name of Pentecost and this project that Brian and I are working on, 
where we want to see what someone else sees when they look at our scripture, my favorite scripture, we have to become open, right? Because what someone else sees may not be what you see, especially if their location, physical location around the world is different, but also their social location. You can live in the same town, but see something very different in the scripture based on gender, race, right? Socioeconomic standing. These things affect what you see. And thank God for it, by the way. Brian said last week that God is like a faceted diamond with a million different faces. I'm going to need to hear what you see and what you see and what you see if I am ever going to have an expansive enough idea of who and what this God is. So my precious Talitha Kum, I read from the perspective of Dr. Reverend Musa Dube, a scholar, a preacher, and a theologian from Botswana. He's currently um, a professor of New Testament at Candler Divinity School, which is at Emory, if you've heard of it, in Atlanta, Georgia. When she reads Talitha Kum, this chapter and section in the book of Mark, she sees it through the lens of someone who grew up in a country riddled with AIDS and HIV. Now, it can be confusing for Americans to, to try to understand what's going on with AIDS and HIV in this other continent so far away. We did, after all, have our own AIDS epidemic here, right? But currently, retroviral drugs, AIDS awareness, all these classes on safe sex and, and or abstinence, for whatever reason, and there are many, we've gotten on the other side of our epidemic. So as a white lady, originally from Charlotte, North Carolina, who did not take much public policy or public health in college, I found myself wondering, what's the deal over there? Why can't they get it together like we did? I know, I hear it, my ignorance is palpable, right? This is why I needed Musa Dube. She lays out a litany of factors that all contribute towards AIDS and Africa. But the number one factor, according to Dr. Dube, is globalization. What is that? Globalization is the word we give when a business or really any organization, but let's say business, in one place, one location in the world, gains international influence, okay? An example, say a cell phone company out of Raleigh, North Carolina starts to do well and they expand their service and they expand where they can offer their product. And now in the middle of Australia, you can buy that phone and for a flat fee, call your family 
which is far away sometimes, and talk to them whenever you want. This is a good thing, right? I'm sure that a mother who misses her adult child is very glad that she can pick up the phone and talk to them. Now, where it gets complicated is that the business and the business's values and the business's desire for profit starts to determine the lives of people far, far, far away. And the convenience of the thing, the cell phone that we're so grateful for, the convenience of the thing can replace the culture of a people. And I, I can't fully define globalization for you here today, right? It's a complicated, multi-layered subject, but I mention it because we all know that the United States has enormous international influence. And I'm not saying that this is good or bad. It just is. That's not what this sermon is about. And I, I also don't think that good or bad is, it's too simple when you're talking about these issues. What I want to do though, is respect Dubé and her perspective that all of this international influence has greatly threatened the culture of her people. And we here on Oahu can relate and see that that is true. So globalization with regards to AIDS has actually made women and girls more vulnerable to death and dying. What? How could that be? Like, we, we made the drugs, we share the drugs. How is this not helping the AIDS epidemic in Africa? And she said that it's about access, right? The powers that be, Eastern and Western, determine who has access. Access. This is where I start to think of the hemorrhaging woman and how she had to force her access. There are all these people in the way. Another factor, and, and then I'll shift away from globalization. I know it's kind of dry. Um, anytime a culture is threatened, it's the vulnerable of that culture that carry the heaviest burden, whose lives get the most difficult. In Botswana, it's, it's mostly a patriarchal culture. So when men in Botswana start to lose their self-identity, start to lose their health, some of their self-respect, it is their women who suffer. Women then have to step up and become the provider, working twice as hard to make half the money, and little girls stay home to care for the sick and dying instead of going to school. So it becomes this cycle. And I imagine it's rather hard to remove yourself from that cycle. So, Dubé asks this question about our passage. Who in this passage are we as individuals? And, and, and so I want to go back through the passage. Again, with our Dubé glasses on, my lenses trained, 
to the suffering of women and girls, which I'd always seen, but this new element of power, of influence, of privilege that I had missed. So, who are the powerful in this passage? And, and right now, I do mean power in terms of influence and status. Who can get things done when things go wrong? Well, it, it's men. And a little sidebar here. It used to really bother me that the Bible often portrays men as so powerful and women as so weak. And I thought that that was supposed to be a model for our society. What God has shown me and what I've learned from people a lot smarter than me is that the, these are just the symbols for power and vulnerability when the Bible was written, right? Sometimes those symbols still align in this world. But when I see powerful men and weak women in the Bible, I see God trying to teach me something about privilege and about vulnerability, okay? Cool. So the powerful folk in this passage are men. Two of them in particular. We've got Jairus, who is the official from the synagogue, a man of power, of status. He's a religious leader, which also meant he was a political leader. The Romans worked with the leaders of the synagogue to govern, right? And then, of course, there's Jesus, a very different kind of power. I think Jairus would have been well aware that taking a knee, kneeling to Jesus in public would have been professional suicide. What would compel a world power to kneel to the Prince of Peace? Desperation, usually. All of the rules of manners, all the rules of culture go out the window when your baby is sick. Mothers and fathers, am I right? Out of love for his daughter, out of desperation, he finds Jesus in a very public place. And of course, Jesus is eating with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. <laughs> this is my kind of Jesus. And in front of everyone, kneels. This power kneels to that power. Will you help me? And Jesus springs up and he leaves immediately. And this is where I imagine Jesus having a cape. You know, like a superhero. Like da da da. Like Jesus to the rescue. This is my kind of Jesus too. And so they're, they're rushing to Jairus' home. Things are going as planned, and then they get stopped. Because in the crowd of disciples, a woman has woven her way up and has touched Jesus, seeking her healing. Right? And when Jesus feels the power go out of him, he turns around. Who was it? And the disciples are like, are you crazy? We can't know. There are only 50 of us around you. It could have been any of us. And he says, no, no, no. No, no, no. This was not someone brushing up against me. Something special happened. What was it? 
He finds the woman, who by now is on the fringe of the crowd, pulls her to the center. She would rather have slinked away, and I can't blame her. As a bleeding woman, she would have been considered unclean. She would not have been welcome around the Savior if it were up to the disciples. The disciples are very human. Jesus pulls her to the middle, and with fear and trembling, she tells him the whole truth. That gives me chills. Can you imagine looking into the eyes of God? What choice would you have but to tell the whole truth? How beloved we are. I wonder how long it took her to tell him the whole truth. Because this very special thing is happening. But Jairus is over here like, come on, come on, come on, come on. I wonder if Jesus was still a hero for him at that point. He, with his status, is in desperation, having taken a big risk, by the way. And Jesus stops, stops him, stops everyone for the sake of the lowest of the low. The most vulnerable, a bleeding woman. To make matters worse, someone comes up to the crowd and says, don't bother the teacher anymore. She died. Not worth his time. And Jesus does something very audacious. Jesus turns to Jairus and says, have faith. Which, if I were Jairus, I think that had been rich at that point. Because it seems there was only time for one healing that day, and it wasn't for him. But Jesus leads the way. They go to Jairus' home. He ignores the funeral procession already in place. They move quick back then. He ignores the fact he is being laughed at. Jesus' ego, well, doesn't exist. He goes straight to the girl's room. He's got a couple of disciples. He's got the mother and the father. He takes her hand and he whispers these holy words to her, to me, to each one of you right now, Talitha Kum. And she was risen. She is risen indeed. They say that the measure of a society is how the powerful treat the vulnerable. In this scripture, I think what we're seeing is that true power takes time with the vulnerable. True power prioritizes the vulnerable. And at the end of the day, it ends up being miraculous for those who are privileged too. There's enough, my church. There's enough in Jesus. There's always abundance. There is always life. There is always love in our most benevolent God. So what does this mean in terms of globalization? Well, we'll start big. We'll start like enormous global scale right now. Dubai 
when she preaches this, it's for two reasons. She's saying Talitha Kum to the women and girls who have very little hope in this world. So to each of you, Talitha Kum. She's also, she wants the attention of the powers that be because they're not bad people. They just want their own healing. But she wants them to please let go of some control and maybe get out of the way so that their bleeding women can access health and wellness. Who are we in this passage? On a global scale, let's just name it. We're globalizers. I did not seek out to globalize anybody, but I'm an American person. And, and being a white woman is a funny thing, isn't it? Because as a woman, I know oppression. Don't tell me I don't. And I'm white. I know privilege. Don't tell me I don't. So it makes sense that when I read this passage, I related to the oppressed. But it took a woman from Botswana to show me that I actually relate to privilege as well. I'm just not always aware of it. So that's some of the takeaway on like this bigger social scale. But before I finish, I wanna call attention to the internal life. I'm a big believer that there is a relationship between what happens inside and what happens outside. So I'm gonna turn to our insides and ask each of you to consider your internal life for a moment. It helps me to put my hand on my heart. Um, maybe because that's the most vulnerable part of me. It's also my strength. And I want each of us to recognize that inside we have a bleeding woman each one of us has a part of ourselves that is being oppressed by ourselves. Maybe our culture has taught us that this part of us is no good. Maybe we've read advertisements or seen things that have said, stay away, you bleed too much. Jesus is for that part of us. Jesus makes time for that part of us. Find her. Be nice to her. Bring her to church. Give her food when she's hungry. And to the leader of the synagogue, which is also in each of us, I say, you two are beloved. Beloved, beloved, you too have a place in the kingdom and you need to get out of the way. Because our officials inside don't want to touch or make time for our bleeding woman. Step aside, Roman officials. Step aside, leaders of synagogue. To step aside is not to disappear. I promise you that. 
when you step aside, when that part of you makes room for her to access Jesus, all of you become seen. All of you becomes powerful. And there is nothing in the world more powerful than unity. Not uniformity. Unity. You can have that unity. We as a body can experience this unity. So, to the oppressed parts of you, I say, Talitha Kum, rise up. And to the privileged parts of you, I say, let go. I don't know the Aramaic for that. Will you pray with me? Father God, who comes to us in Christ, in the Holy Spirit, but also as a mother hen and in the form of vulnerable bodies. We come before you today embracing our humanity, our imperfections, our tender spots. We come to you today inspired by a word of friendship between power and vulnerable. May we all experience the bliss of unity, self-acceptance, and the little taste of your God, of your love, Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.